You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anytime. Anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, are you watching my Facebook Live series? Go to my Facebook page, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. Click like and then get notified every time I go live. You'll get an inside peek at something I do during my day that has to do with producing. Go check it out, facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. See what producers do every single day. Just like the title, every day is different. We'll see you on Facebook. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I'm very excited to have as my guest today the Tony Award-winning and Pulitzer Prize finalist, Mr. Warren Light. Welcome, Warren. Nice to be here. So Warren won that Tony for Best Play and was a finalist for the Pulitzer for Sideman. And actually, it wasn't too long after that that he got sucked up by the Hollywood machine and has been a writer and showrunner for a whole bunch of television shows, including that one that is never on television on any channel, Law & Order, SVU, HBO is in treatment, and much, much more. So let's just dig into it. When did you start writing? So I was always going to write. Other kids wanted to be an athlete. I was going to be a sports writer. There was there was no chance I was going to be an athlete. And I always wanted to write. And I was graduating. I went to a, I got scholarship to a good college. I was graduating. I went to my, my creative writing teacher. And I said, I, I need to know, can I do this for a living? He says, well, what do you mean? I go, I can go to a law school and I have, I have a lot of family obligations. I have people I have to take care of. But if you think I can do this for a living, I'd rather write for a living. He goes, you can't ask me that. And I said, well, I kind of need to know. And he goes, okay, I I think you can do it. And so that was Toby Wolf, Tobias Wolf, who, who was then a grad student and was 
bored to death of teaching these kids who were mostly, most of the kids who took creative writing there were like scholar athletes and just like writing essays about their coach. When was this? What school? This was Stanford. I grew up in the city and, and ran away from home, but did it in a way that kind of brought honor to the family. But so I, I came back to New York. I got a job writing ads for college textbooks. I'm, I don't mean to brag. And then I, I just started, I had no connections at all. I would just, I, I write articles and send them in over the transom and the Village Voice bought one. First piece I ever wrote was where to find a bathroom in New York City. Very classy piece. I was very excited about it. And then I just kept sending things out. I did an article about comedy in New York, and I met a cabaret troupe called the High Heeled Women, all all girl cabaret troupe. And the uh, I would write the book and some of the lyrics, and then they would take it to their piano player composer, a guy named Mark Shaman. This is 1978, and I got paid ten dollars an hour to write for them. And my credit was the girls write all their own material. So, but you had a uh, lot of glamorous gigs. Yeah, no, but and that was like mob nightclubs and and. People like charging you a cover to hear your own show. And, and but that was my first taste of an audience and the immediacy of that. And I was, and I took to it really well. And I kind of understood, you know, oh, that joke didn't work. Get rid of that. Do it. And there were, there was a woman in that group, Cassandra Dans, who'd come out of Second City. And, and she was, that was, you know, impressive to us. And she would occasionally say things like, why am I saying that? And I would say, because it's funny. And she goes, but it doesn't work for my character. And I would just stare at her like, but it's funny. <laughs> and, but she was, it took me a while to realize she knew things I didn't know. And that you write, if you write for character, the jokes or the story can follow. But if you, if you just concoct shtick, it, it, it doesn't resonate as much. And so that was a, my grad school. So, interestingly enough, you may be the first writer we've had on the podcast that Theater wasn't first for you. Writing was first. You were just yeah. going to write, and you didn't know exactly what you were going to write. Oh, I knew I was going to be a journalist. <laughs> it's even worse. I majored in journalism. But it was shortly after All the President's Men came out. And it was that year where I think 60,000 journalism students graduated American colleges with, their, with that as their major. And I think there were like 4,000 working journalists. And I, I sent out resumes to, I don't know, 300 newspapers in the country. I didn't even get a letter back. You know, it was just... So I was really just cutting and pasting a living in New York. I had to make 600 a month to live on. That was my nut. And I would, I just booked any job that came up. There was a guy in my apartment building. I ran into him, started to chat. He said he was a producer. I lied and said I was a writer. And he had a horror movie that he was trying to get going. I said, I love horror movies. And I went to Times Square and watched 14 of them in one night. Because you did not. I did, I I hated horror movies. I didn't, I wasn't my, I was not remotely interested in horror movies, but I, you know, I watched, I, also a great place to watch horror movies because it's so much scarier in the theater than on the screen, number one. But also you, th- those audiences let you know when they were bored, you know, and when the plot wasn't working and they would just scream back at the, at the screen, get back in the car, bitch. What do you know? And, and, you know, so I, I realized don't, don't, don't drag these scenes out too long. And we would sit there in his apartment, which had an air conditioner. And he would lie on his back and say, so what comes next? So what comes next? So what comes next? And I would type. And that's how we co-wrote. And he sent it. First, we did a treatment for $600 for me. And then he said, oh, we have some Swedish investors, some sort of tax scam in Sweden. Can you write the screenplay with me? And that was another 600 bucks. And then I, I thought this was, this is never going to, this is, this is, you know, vanity press or something. And he called and said, we're going to shoot it this summer. I want you on set because we don't get the best actors. You may have to change some lines. 
but I can't afford to have you on set if you're not doing anything. So would you mind booming the picture? So that was my first exposure to film production. But none of this, no, I wanted to be a journalist. And it just, I also had a bad habit as a journalist. I would talk to people and interview them. And I got their sense pretty clearly. And I would, the rap, the editor said, you get the best quotes. You always get like that perfect quote quote at the end of an article that just sums up a person's life. And, and I thought, and I, I that was because it, it was, I was figuring it out. And I thought nobody ever complained because I did, they generally summed up the person's life correctly, but they were not anything the person had said. And Your I first example of dialogue. I was right. writing dialogue for the people I was interviewing. And I, I, on some lizard brain level, I knew that was not a good pattern. So it, it, I started cabaret work. And humor writing, and I got into National Lampoon off of a humor book. It was just, a, I call it toxic waste. I would book a project, and that would lead to somebody else. You know, I would, and I would just say yes. So, can you write corporate speeches? Yes. Can you write a, I wrote a Industrial for People magazine. You know, I just, I just booked things. And I think the first legit, legit gig, I've been writing all these articles in the Village Voice about New York, which led to a humor book about New York called the I Hate New York Guidebook which led to a call from Charles Strauss's people. They owned the rights to Mayer, Ed Koch's narcissistic autobiography, and would I come in and talk to them about it? And I read the book, and we came up with a compromise, of because you couldn't really make a musical out of Ed Koch's book, because every scene in it was, how great am I? How great am I? Look how I beat up this guy. Look how I beat... And it was, it was not a pleasant experience. To, to read or to watch. But I said, what, what's interesting is where the city is now. This was mid-80s and, and, you know, gentrification was hitting, but murders were still high. And there was this, the bifurcation that we see now had started. And I, 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 I remember telling Charles Strauss about this, who had no idea that this was going on in any way. And we had a, an interesting collaboration. I would write an incredibly caustic sketch, and then he would write a song apologizing for the sketch. And we even had a song in there that I wrote called The Last I Hate New York Song you'll ever hear. And this was mostly my, if not, if not my lyrics, because Charles is credited as lyricist of this. It was my sense of New York, sick of the, just everything I was sick of at that point. I was in a six story walk up with a drug dealer with three German shepherds next to me. And my life was difficult at that time. And Charles was in a different place. So this was a, a, just a, a vent, a rant about how miserable life can be in New York. And it was called the last I love New York song you'll ever hear. And then about three songs later in the show, we had another I Love New York song. <laughs> it was, but, but you know, it, it played. It started out at, at Art DeLugos Village Gate. I had Nancy Giles, the African-American commentator, played Bess Meyerson for me. We, we started out down there. Lenny Wolpe played the mayor. And we moved to, I think it was called the Princess Theater, which was later demolished. It was, but it was a, it was, it was really a mob Broadway house. It was a lot of ice, as they called it in those days. I love this. I just said yes to everything. It's corporate speeches, whatever. Any any of those that you that didn't work out so well? Oh, all of them. <laughs> the horror, you, the horror movie review from the New York Times was: it's as if there were a force in the universe heretofore unknown called anti-talent, which I'd say is mixed. <laughs> and how did you keep saying yes to things after reading reviews like that or getting? Well, I was writing for a living, and I was very happy about it. The, the High Hill women I loved writing for. And, you know, I, if you're writing a sketch and Shaman is writing the songs, you're in very good... This is before he was Mark Shaman, but he was Mark Shaman. It was, it was 
I loved watching those shows. I loved going to the theater to see that. Mayer played very nicely. It, it, it played the house really well. Trump, in the middle of previews, had a lawyer's letter sent asking to be removed from the show because he was a private citizen and, and we needed to respect his privacy. But, you know, and I, I felt there were incremental, I won't even say improvements, but every year it just got, there would be like a, a, at least one or two good signs. You know, uh, the humor book led not just to Mayer the Musical, but National Lampoon which had cannibalized the book terribly, finally brought me in and put me uh, on staff for a little while. And I, I was beginning to make a more consistent living. And I, uh, I, at this point, I don't think I had many other options. And I liked, I would book 50, 75 jobs a year. And it was, you just go into a world. I was writing, I was a his columnist for Mademoiselle magazine. I was a jazz columnist for Rocky Mountain magazine. I did a lot of script doctoring of horrible movies that had run out of money. And they had two days left to shoot seven days of script. What could I do? And I'd figure things out. And so it was, it was inadvertently, I was learning every aspect of TV, movie, and theatrical production because, you, you know, you write a one act and you get to the stage and there's no set because the set designer's check bounced and he left with his set. What can we do? And that, those sort of things were, you know, we were, every basement was about to be torn down that we performed in. I got into these, got into Naked Angels and, you know, I was, there was some sense of, I was certainly, I was meeting people whom I was jealous of. And so that, the good thing about being jealous of people if you, is it lets you know where you want to go. Who, you, who, If you envy someone, that probably means you want to do what they're doing. So I, I, that was helpful in its own way. Was there a moment when you said, oh, I, I think I've made it. I think I'm good now. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm successful. Yeah, I guess the night I won the Tony. <laughs> so that's. <laughs> That's, that's that's a pretty good sign. That, so but that was 15 years later. How know. old were you when that happened, when you wrote uh, Sideman? Okay, so it turned out I had been writing Sideman basically for my whole life without realizing it. I, I was also doing stand-up at the West Bank Cafe. They had a midnight show. Louis Black hosted. Louis wanted to be a playwright, and I wanted to be a stand-up comic at that point. And I would do riffs about my jazz player, my jazz trumpet playing dad, or you know, Thanksgiving at, at, at our apartment, which was, you know, fuck you, enjoy the lasagna. You know, it was, and I started to do a little stand up there and I was always riffing on the world of the jazz musicians, the unemployment line. The first time I signed for an unemployment check, and this was actually a true story. The first time I signed for unemployment, my dad was signing for his like eight millionth check and he was with all of his buddies and he saw me there and he, he like waved and was like, hey kiddo. And he basically said, guys, get a load of this. My son is signing for his first check with a pride that I had never seen him have. And so I did that in stand-up. And eventually, as my career continued to devolve, I, I, I had these seemingly big breaks that would crash and burn, usually for crime I hadn't committed, but a movie assigned to the wrong director, or I got to direct a movie, but it was Harvey Weinstein was involved, and he was selling his company at the time, so he he, he was... It's hard to imagine, but he was in a bad mood during much of this process. And that was a, a horrible experience working with him. I'm proud to say I have been warning people away from him since 1992. But but all these big breaks, every time someone said, you're never going to have to worry about money again, or this is it, there were a lot of bums rushes. So after the movie came out and didn't go over too well, it's a nice movie called The Night We Never Met, I thought, well, if I write a play, no one will ever see it, but nobody will be able to screw it up. They won't be able to re-edit it. They won't be able to... So I started to to just take all of these little pieces of Sideman that had been 
I'd written, and with Toby Wolf, I'd written a short story about being, growing up in that family. And I just started to stitch it together, and I had maybe 160 pages of ambiance. Nothing happened in the play. But it, but it was, it felt better to, to, to just be writing organically. And I ran into, at the West Bank Cafe, where Steve Olson has been, other people maybe have had the public as their mentor or Lincoln Center. Those guys never really talk to me. But Steve Olson always let me do anything I wanted at the West Bank Cafe. I said, oh, I have a, a one act uh, or a full length play. You're do, can we do a reading of it here? And he said, sure. And I had seen a play Michael Mayer directed that I liked a lot. So I got, I called him, got a number for him, called him, said he would do a reading for two days. That's it. We were casting. He said he had an idea for the father for Sideman. He said, it's no one you've ever heard of. He's kind of a He's not a, uh, he, anyway, it's a guy named Frank Wood. I go, what's he in? He goes, well, right now he's teaching mask in the Bronx. I said, sounds great. <laughs> Bronx high schools. And I, I had originally wanted, Marissa Tomei was in Naked Angels. She's Italian. My mom was Italian. She said she would do it. And she got a job. So she couldn't do the read the reading. And this is how sad my life was at this point. I was taking a bus home on Valentine's Day down 9th Avenue. And I run into Edie Falco on the bus whose life was also going great. And we're chatting. And I'd seen her. We'd had a one act at Naked Angels. I, in an evening of one act, she'd acted in one. I'd written another. And I said, very classily, oh, Marissa Tomei just dropped out of this thing. Do you think you could do this reading for me? And I sent it to her. And inadvertently, and I didn't find this out for many years, this was, so this is the story of a woman married to a jazz musician who had, who is, and while the world of jazz is falling apart, their marriage is falling apart and her mental health is, is disintegrating. And so it's a, it's a thinly veiled autobiography, biographical tale. And I said to Edie, I sent it to her. I didn't know for years this was, her dad was a jazz drummer. I didn't find this out until like eight years later. But the first, so we did this reading. And the first time she yelled at her kid, everybody at the reading flinched. And I realized, oh Christ, we all had this childhood. And they were perfect together. And they ended up, you know, going to Broadway four years later. And after the first day of rehearsal, Michael just said, honey, something has to happen in the second act. And I went home and I rewrote the entire second act that night. And I wrote these scenes that I had been avoiding for the previous 40 years of my life or 35. And, and I brought it in. He said, oh, but we've rehearsed the other thing. I said, well, can you just look at it? And he looked and I said, oh, well, we have to do this tonight, don't we? And that second act was more or less, this is 96. We won the Tony in 99 with almost word for word that second act that you wrote in one night yeah it had been um, pent up and what's your writing process like do you have do you sit down every morning do you have a it's like, a disaster <laughs> i wish i mean when i'm show running if i'm on law and order svu and we're doing 24 episodes a year which is a lot then i i don't really my my whatever my process would normally be is irrelevant because i need every 8 days i need a new shooting script to publish that will prep for eight days while another script starts shooting while I'm breaking story on three others. Well, so my process then is just total immersion and there's, and it's, it's a harness. Now I'm not doing that left to my own devices. I regress to my old patterns, which is I'm a binge writer. I'm not a, I, you know, like Tom Fontaine. I know a lot of these guys who I wake up, I meditate, I sit down, and before I do anything, I write for three hours. And I was like, and I, you know, I, it, it's like I'm going to get to the gym on Monday. It, it's just that has never, I've, for better and for worse, I've always been a binge writer. And when I've forced myself to write in a more regulated way, 
inevitably the first 60 pages of a screenplay take me six weeks, the next 30 pages take me three weeks, and the last 30 pages is one night. And then I go back and rewrite the other 90 pages because those last 30 pages are so much better than the first 90 and have so much more energy. It's just, I, 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 my process is, is to get to like a fever pitch of self-loathing and then binge. So you brought up SVU and television. What's the major difference between writing for the small screen or the big screen and mm-hmm. the theater? The, you know, on In Treatment, there was, those were, we did 35 of those in 70 days. Those were 35 one acts. There was no difference between, uh, except that I had greater continuity. I had, all, I had Gabriel Byrne was your therapist, which who wouldn't want that? And I had five people in therapy with him. And it was each of them had seven sessions, and each of those sessions was half an hour. And that was 35 one-act plays that we more or less wrote in, in two months. SVU is, is more, you have to plot much more. You have to be much more aware of structure, I think. And, and you, you have 42 minutes to tell your story. So you have more of a container than you do necessarily in the theater. But for me, it's always been about hearing it with actors I must have a reading when I'm doing TV. A lot of actors in TV don't like to do readings. And I go, if I can't hear it, we're dead. I need to hear it spoken out loud. I write by ear more than by eye. So to me, I've always, I I like switched, I've switched back and forth. I like it. I miss, I don't miss the pace of theater. I can't stand writing something and waiting a year for a reading and then waiting. Sideman took forever to get a production. It just it was eating at a certain point i was in a car crash in 1997 and as my car was spinning around and as my head was gushing blood i thought now they'll produce my play uh, you know it was just and it was it was turned down by every theater in new york as a lot of plays have been tv what i found from a is less what's a polite way of saying this my experience in tv has been once they find out you can do it they throw the work at you and it's it's less of an exclusive club if you can, it's so deadline driven that if you turn out to be able to write something shootable on deadline, and then you know how to talk to actors, and you can even talk to designers. I, I went from never having watched an hour long TV show, which is true, before I got hired for Law and Order. Four years later, I was show running Law and Order. I won a Tony, and I I have not sensed a lot of the places that turned Sideman down after won a Tony weren't eager to see my next play because. They turned sideman down. There's a couple, there's a guy who runs a theater just out of the block. I sent him, I sent him something. He said, look, I still don't think sideman's a good play. But, and then they sent me letters asking me to donate money to their theater. <laughs> of course they did. Of but, course they did. So I, to me, the chops are, I, I can explore. On SVU, we got into some very deep emotional places. So I think there's a snobbishness that I, I, I no longer worry about where, oh, you're a TV writer now kind of a thing. But I think that has shifted a bit. I'm on the Dramatist Guild Council, and I can't tell you how many writers whom I look up to and admire have pulled me aside and said, I really love that episode of SVU. But they, they kind of whisper it because it's, you know, it's, it's an episode of SVU. But it turns out a lot of them, it's their like, down-low secret habit. It's so many of ours. It's everything. I just, my wife and I, we look for an episode every single night. It's just, yeah, when you can always find it. We can, which is very good for you. So is there anything that theater writers can actually learn from the success of Law & Order? Well, it's, it's funny. If Okay, so I'm knocking out... I did 117 Law & Orders in five years at SVU. And and I'm, I see almost every play and musical that comes to Broadway. I still see everything. 
And about 85, the problem for me now is I'm sitting there and everything I see, I think I could cut 40 minutes out of this effortlessly. And the audience would leave half. The audience, I believe, no longer needs a two-hour and 45-minute musical every time. I I love these one-act, hour and 40-minute shots. You know, we all have more complicated lives than back in the aughts. And, and there's sometimes... Well, it's when Michael Mayer said to me, something has to happen. Or I had a great dramaturg in Poughkeepsie at New York Stage and Film when we were doing Sidemen, who said, anytime you have a choice between a scene of ambiance or a scene of action, go with the scene of action. Now, those are obvious things, but for whatever reason, I think because playwrights own it and it's theirs, they somehow sometimes forget to tighten it up. And every there's a you can't really be precious in a 42-minute TV show the way you can be in a two-hour and 45-minute play. And, and sometimes that allows for wonderful angels in America, wonderful expanse and, 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 and transcendent experiences. And sometimes it means I'm dozing off in the first act about 17 minutes in. Uh, so I, I think, you know, TV writers can learn to write more from character and more thematically. And, and every time they do, television is strengthened. I think playwrights can think a little bit more about, as my horror movie writer used to tell me, what comes next. Are there ideas? Can an idea work in any medium? Or are there ideas that should be television? Are there ideas that should be stage? Yeah, it's funny. I I wrestle with that a lot. There are, I don't think Sideman would work as a TV series. There's a time jump in that play, but it all takes place in one moment in the narrator's life when he goes to see his father play. And then he re-examines his whole life, but he's in that bar the whole time. And that feels theatrical to me. It is the, why is this night different from any other night? I, I think by the end of that play, we know a lot about those characters. We don't need to see them next week when he continues to, it, it, we're done. It, it, it's a, it's a, that felt, and there's a certain time jumping in that and a certain playing with music. All of that feels theatrical to me. Somewhere someone can make a TV show out of it, but I, I wouldn't. It could be a movie, but it hasn't been. Movies to me tend to be a hero's journey. That's a cliche, but it seems to be true. I think movies right now are in a sort of a difficult place because the momentum needed to launch a movie is so great that the, there's just this gigantic pressure to do these blockbuster things. And then the little independent movies are are marginalized the way the theater reeled in the 80s was marginalized. But I, I, I think sometimes I'll start noodling not knowing what it's going to be. And then I'll get about two-thirds in. I'll go, oh, oh, this, is a, this isn't a pilot for a TV show. This is a, a screenplay. And it, it's a question of, is it the arc of one... Is it a satisfying arc to one story, or is it is it the more Dick, Dickensian model of we're going to live in this world and get to know these people for a long time? You think it's easier for writers to get started today or harder? And if you were starting off today, what would you? I mean, what would you do? You know, there are more TV jobs than there have ever been, but I suspect there are more people trying to get those jobs. I I, I guess the smart money would be. To move to LA and get a, if you were starting today, to move to LA and get a job in a writer's room, any job, clean, ordering lunch, and eventually write something that someone, but I think, I mean, if you look at my career path, it's, it, it's incomprehensible and no one would ever model their career path on mine, but it, it, it worked out okay for me. So I wasn't going to be great in the room pitching in LA. That's not, I don't know how to sell something, uh, and, uh, and I don't know how to 
think about what is the audience looking for right now. I, I you know, I, I think you have to think about what your personality is, how much abuse you can take, how much phoniness you can tolerate, what 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 you're good at, what what your strengths are, and you just do it. Uh, eventually, I also think you have to get in a writer's group as soon as you can. You have to hear your stuff read out loud. You have to get in with actors and hear it performed and listen to actors. I get mad. A lot of times on TV, you have writers who've only done TV and they're like, oh God, the actor has notes. I mean, that's normal for an LA TV writer. And it's like, well, he knows his character better than you do at this point. Why don't you go talk to him? And that really bugs me. But but that's there's this kind of a separation of... So it's, LA TV tends to be more hierarchical. And a lot of people don't want to hear from the actor or don't want to hear from the designers. Or, and I, I, I don't like that approach. I guess I would say figure out... Well, go back. Who are you jealous of? What world do you want to be in? Who, what writer do you just... Who knocks you out? What form was that in? For me, early on, it was comedy. I just wanted to be a comedy writer. And then after Sideman opened, they would only hire me for drama. <laughs> you know, it, it, I, I don't know that you can force your career or predict your career, but I suspect you have to just, I mean, it, maybe the one lesson from my thing is you just keep going. You just pick yourself up and you keep going. Because it would have been sensible to quit after that first horror movie review. All right, my last question, which is my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, Warren, I want to thank you for that incredible play, Sidemen, as well as all these episodes of SVU that I continue to watch. By granting you one wish, what's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway, about the theater right now, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? With no malice toward any particular individual, here's something that I think is worth looking at. When when I wrote Sideman, which was in 1996, the first drafts, or even earlier, I believe Ben Rantley was the critic at the New York Times. I believe that every major nonprofit theater in New York, with the exception of the public, had an artistic director who is still the artistic director now. And so I had a very hard time cracking in on what I hadn't gone to the right Stanford, whatever you can say about it, it's not a school that launches a lot of playwrights. Henry David Huang is the other one, I think. I was not connected, and I was not allowed in. It was, it felt, it felt like an exclusive club, and I wasn't allowed in. And it's, we are now almost 20, closing in on 25 years later, and there's been virtually no turnover at the major institutions or at the major critic slot. And that sort of and individually, I like almost almost all of these people, but there's something sclerotic about that uh, over time. So I, I like there is that English model, right? The British model of artistic directors who have term limits in general. I would love to see critics rotated out. I think I owe my career in part because Peter Marks, when Simon initially opened off off Broadway, Peter Marks was sent to review it, and because it was way below Ben Bradley's radar. And Peter Marks was more open to that kind of play than Brantley would have been. I have no question in my mind about that. But it's, I would love to see fresher blood, more air let in, in into, into these theaters. Because I think what, what we have is, uh, it's, it's very institutional at the moment. And it's, the risk takers have found places, have found other places to 
to, to become artistic directors, but be nice to see, and I, probably as an older playwright, I, I'm, I'm probably diminishing my chances of getting a play on, but I think it'd be nice to, to see more turnover in all the positions of power, and, and again, diminishing my chances moving forward. I think a little bit more diversity is also good. I wish theater, and a little less Anglophilia. A very good answer and an answer we haven't heard yet in our genie question. So thank you for that. Thank you for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening out there. We will see you on the next Producers Perspective podcast. Don't forget to check out my Facebook page at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport to watch my new series, Every Day is Different, where you'll get a sneak peek into what producers do. Go check it out at facebook.com backslash Ken Davenport. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.